Next uh, Sunday, we finish with uh, verses 35 to 38. Today, I'd like us to consider a, a theme that runs through the chapter, the indwelling spirit. And this theme has given rise to the majority of the conversations and letters and emails and whatnot I've had on it. So I want to focus on that today. And uh, let's read verses 1 to 30 in the chapter so we can pick up and get a flavor of it again. Paul writes, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. But if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. A hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints 
according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Well, let's pray for God's help. Father, these are great, great, great words, great truths. And we thank you that you have helped us as we have wrestled with them together. And we pray that as we do so over these final two weeks in our series, that you would lay down the great principles therein into our hearts, not least this great truth that is the indwelling spirit. So speak to us all, whether we are Christians or not Christians. Help us to see and understand what it means to be a Christian. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me encourage you, uh, as Tim has said, to uh, get a book. I don't want to see any copies of Knowing God left in the bookshelf. If you have no money, I've got some in my pocket. Not enough to buy them, but I'm sure Tim will give them to you half price. (laughs) Send me a bill. Um, Do buy the book in Romans as well. It's always good to recommend a book in Romans when you're at the end of the series. You can then go and read it. Um, Every preacher has uh, two or three books up their sleeve when they study a book of the Bible. But Keller's book on Romans is very, very, very helpful. Now, we have two weeks left, as I've said, in Romans 8. And today I want to focus on the area that has given rise to most of the conversations, most of the questions, comments, and letters I've had about the indwelling Holy Spirit. Let me take you to one such conversation after the service. Somebody said to me, are you really saying that when I become a Christian, the Holy Spirit lives in me? I said, yes. And they said, well, that's great. I didn't know that. And I said, you did know that because I see the Holy Spirit living in you. How is the Holy Spirit living in me? They said, because your life is changing. Because you have assurance and confidence in the things of the gospel. It's a great, great truth for us to grasp as Christians. That if you're a Christian and you're sitting here this morning, God himself lives in you. God of all glory has come into your life, into your body, into your mind, and lives inside of you. That's a powerful thing. The indwelling Spirit. And what does it mean to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit? What does it mean that God lives in us? Well, you'll see on the service sheet one or two headings that get to the heart of that. Firstly, and it's a fundamental point, that a Christian is someone who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And uh, This is what has struck a chord with many of us. A Christian is someone who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It strikes a chord if you're a Christian, and it strikes a chord if you're not yet a convinced Christian. That being a Christian is fundamentally about being in a relationship with God. Not that we are in a relationship with us as much that He is in a relationship with us. It's God to us. God indwelling us. God living in us. Christianity is not about following a set of rules. It's not even a way of life. It is life with God, or God in us, or life in God. It's a powerful thing. It's a very attractive thing. It's a very compelling thing. It's a very comforting thing. It's a very challenging thing. 
that every moment of our days, God is with us because he lives in us. A key verse would be Romans 8 and verse 9. Have a look at that in your Bibles. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Now, Paul shifts between uh, Spirit of God, Spirit of Christ, Spirit. He uses all that interchangeably. And it's powerful what he says. If you are not indwelt by the Holy Spirit, whatever that means, you're not a Christian. A Christian is someone who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. A Christian is someone in whom God lives. If God is not inside of you by the Holy Spirit, you're not a Christian, Paul says. What does it mean, though, to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit? Well, it means that the Holy Spirit is, is a person. Not a force, nor a power. The Holy Spirit is a person, God himself. What does dwells in mean? Well, it means God, in his person, lives in us, in our bodies. At the very core of our beings, as human beings, there is God living in us. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's relationship. It's personal. It's intimate. It's not about stuff that is external to us, being a Christian. It's not about a way of life that follows a set of rules. Rather, it is a fundamental change in who we fundamentally are inside of us. It's a new way of life, yes, but one that has come about because of an internal change at the very core of our beings. Now, people talk about Christianity, and I do, you do, as a radical change that has come about in how we live, and that is true. But there is something deeper than that. Christianity is a radical change in who we fundamentally are at the very core of our beings. So when you go away this afternoon, whatever you're going to do, If you're a Christian, remember that God lives in you. It's very, very powerful, very challenging, and very comforting at the same time. It's not a moment in your day or a moment when you sleep that God is not right there with you because he's in you. Let me give you a simple illustration. When you buy a house, you move in. Now, in the first service, this elicited a lot of follow-up questions afterwards, but not here. Let me congratulate you too, just as a passing footnote, if you're Irish. Well done for yesterday. We Scots let you put 30 points past us, knowing that you would need 30 to win. Lots of Irish people here at the first service. When you buy a house, you move in. Normally, but not in service one. Normally, though, you do, yeah? When the Lord Jesus bought our lives, bought forgiveness for us through his death on the cross, he moved in. He moved into our house, that is our body and our life, in the person of his spirit. It's a simple illustration. But what kind of house did he move into? And this brings us to our second point you'll see on the sheet. He moved into a house that needs refurbishment. It's kind of project. He didn't move into a 
kind of show home. He moved into a house that needs a lot of work done to it, work in progress. And that takes us to the second truth, that through the indwelling spirit, we have all that Christ's death (laughs) achieved. Through the indwelling spirit, we have all that Christ's death achieved. Now, Christian faith is centered on the cross, and we will celebrate that and think about what it means over our Easter weekend. And the cross is an historical event. 2,000 years ago, Jesus died on a cross outside of Jerusalem. But the great truth of what it means to be a Christian is that what happened that day, what Jesus Christ achieved on the cross when he died, comes to us or into us when the Holy Spirit indwells us. So when you become a Christian, and remember, to become a Christian or to be a Christian is to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. When that happened in your life, all that Christ's death achieved when he died suddenly became yours. And there was a connection made between you when you became a Christian, and that may have happened over a period of time, not necessarily an instant, a connection was made in your life when you became a Christian and his life when he died. What does it mean? To have all the achievements of Christ's death in you, in your person, by the Holy Spirit. One, it means that you have been saved from the penalty of sin. No condemnation. Romans 8, verse 1, that great verse. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In the early talks on Romans 8, when we were struggling to understand what Paul was saying, I I said to you at the end of each talk, whatever else you remember, remember remember Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's a wonderful verse. When Jesus died... He bore our sin in his sinless flesh. In other words, when he died as a perfect man, yet fully God, without sin, without wrongdoing, he died as a perfect sacrifice for my sin and yours. And therefore, his righteousness becomes ours. His eternity becomes our eternity. No condemnation. And if that had not had happened then all people face everlasting condemnation, everlasting judgment. But because Jesus Christ has died, there is, for those who believe, no condemnation. Not the chance that there will be no condemnation, or not the possibility that there might be as a kind of dual transaction between what he did and how you live. Because Christ died, there is, for those who believe, no condemnation, saved from the penalty for sin. But also we have seen that the indwelling Holy Spirit sets us free from the power of sin. When the Holy Spirit indwells you, the Holy Spirit, God himself, liberates you at the very core of your being from the dominion, from the sovereignty of sin. Now we've illustrated that in lots of ways in the series in Romans 8. For example, think of it like a a ship And the Holy Spirit comes and takes control of the bridge of the ship. 
And when it's got control of the bridge, it's got control of the control center or the, the, the control tower at an airport. The bit that really matters. Or I've used a golfing illustration. I played golf for the first time a couple of weeks ago. And, and frustratingly, and you maybe heard me say this, I can't remember if I've said this before in the last few weeks, I hit the ball perfectly, having not hit it for nine months. And you know, if you're a golfer, that if you have lots of lessons, it doesn't mean to say you're going to hit the ball perfectly at all. It's the most frustrating game in the world. And we use the illustration of, imagine if Rory McIlroy lived in me. Imagine that. You wouldn't beat me at golf, would you? And if he stood in the first tee and he's living in you and you hit the ball, you've got that ability that he has inside of you. And if God is living in you by the Holy Spirit, then you cannot fail to begin to conquer the sin in our lives that we all face. Whatever that sin is, let's not focus on any particular dimension of sin. Sin is all that we are. Sin is everywhere in our lives. The Holy Spirit comes into our bodies and begins to transform us from the inside out in the power of God. Let me go back to the illustration of the house. You buy a house and it needs refurbishment. There's some structural stuff that needs doing. Maybe you've got to take the roof off, retile it. And then there's the lime green walls you've got to change and the carpet that you just cannot cope with because it gives you a migraine. Now with most of us, it takes ages to paint the lime green walls or change the carpet. And as the years go by, you begin to like the lime green walls and the carpet. Let me tell you one of the most powerful conversations I've had with someone in Romans 8. When we talked about the indwelling spirit inside of you conquering stuff that you know needs sorted, we tend to think of that as the big crisis stuff, the big stuff that comes along, the crisis stuff. But when we looked at this, we illustrated it by, by the kind of background noise stuff that goes on in our lives, maybe for 10 or 15 or 20 years, that is just at volume two that we know is wrong, we know needs dealt with. But over time, we don't and we get used to it. And we begin even to be comfortable with it. That's the stuff that when we begin to let the Holy Spirit refurbish that area of our life. Some room in the house that needs refurbished that's off limits. You know, everybody has a room in their house when they move in that none of us ever see because you never get to see that room in the house. That you chuck everything in when anyone comes. It's amazing how many of you chuck everything in your house that must make your house as messy into one room when I come and visit because I don't believe your houses are tidy. We've all got that, haven't we? We've got stuff where we put stuff. We leave it. And that's the area where often the Holy Spirit comes in. And the person who spoke to me in these terms said to me a couple of weeks later, they've begun to let the Holy Spirit into these areas of their life. And what a wonderful, wonderful liberation that has brought to them. It's not that the struggle is gone. It's just beginnings of progress. Now, we can hinder the work of the Holy Spirit in us. It's not that we get more of the Holy Spirit. You can't get more of a person. My wife changes me in all sorts of good ways. She does make me late all the time. Now, that's not a good way, but in most of the ways, she changes me in a very powerful and positive way. But I've got to let her do that. Sometimes I resist 
her good influences on me. It's the same with with God. I I have all of God. I I have all of Sally. I have all of God. It's not that there's a bit of the Holy Spirit that I don't have access to because the Holy Spirit's a person in me. It's that the Holy Spirit hasn't yet got access to all of me. That's what we've got to let him do. Let him into these rooms, these cupboards, the garage, whatever it is. The indwelling Spirit saves us from the penalty, no condemnation, liberates us from the power Sin is no longer my master, my sovereign. And let me repeat that sin and sin, we tend to use that word and focus in on this particular area of struggle that Christians may or may not have. It's, a, it's an enormous, it's everywhere in our lives. It might be what we think, say, do, envy, greed, all sorts of things. The Holy Spirit saves us from the penalty, the power, and finally, the presence. Verse 11, if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. We ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. The great promise to the Christian, if the Holy Spirit lives in you, you are saved now from the penalty for sin that is no condemnation for eternity for you. You have been liberated from the power of sin and you will be future perfect tense. It's guaranteed, but you've not got it yet. It's guaranteed though you will be set free from the very presence of sin because you will live in a resurrection body on a resurrected earth. Through the indwelling spirit, we have all that Christ Achieved. So when Jesus died on his cross 2,000 years ago, get your minds there now, when he died on his cross 2,000 years ago, for humanity, he saved those who would believe through all of history, before and after he came, he saved humanity from the penalty, the power, and the presence of sin. And he saved the earth on which we stand from the presence of sin, for it will be resurrected. And all that he achieved that day is yours and mine to have through faith. And to have it through faith means you have it inside of you by the Holy Spirit. Almost as if Jesus Christ, the Spirit of Christ, that's why Paul talks in that language, lives inside of you and all that he achieved is inside of you within you. Now thirdly, through the Holy Spirit the indwelling spirit, we have all of these things, relationship, hope, help, and assurance. One, two, three, four things. That turns this into a four-point sermon, not a seven-point sermon. We could have had four points here. The great comforting truths in this chapter about what the Holy Spirit achieves in us. Now, if you've been here through our studies in Romans 8, you'll know that Paul doesn't write Romans 8 in a kind of vacuum. In the original Greek, there is no such thing as Uh, that big letter 8 in your Bibles. Romans 7 and Romans 8 run as a sequence, one into the other. It's one continuous, consecutive narrative. Why did Paul write Romans 8? Paul write... I've just told you there's no such thing as Romans 8. Why did Paul write the bit we call Romans 8? Because of struggles in the Christian's life. What are the struggles? Real, normal, coal-faced struggles that I still go on struggling with sin? Is the gospel really true? Second, the problem of suffering 
and death. Suffering and death. And the great, uh, there are so many great comforts at this chapter. One of the most powerful things many of you have picked up on this is that isn't it great that the Christian gospel is articulated and explained in Romans right there at the reality of life and the struggles and difficulties of life. In a world of suffering and in a world of pain, the gospel is articulate. So through the Holy Spirit, we have relationship. What do you need in life? What helps you in life when the battles come along, the struggles come along? What helps you? People help you. Relationships. People that love you. Maybe in your family, maybe friends. Encouragement of having people around you. Paul wants to get into that sphere of language and remind us about the encouragement that we have because of our close relationship with God and how intimate that relationship is. So verses 15 to 17, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Now, when I talk about my children, you promise never to tell them what I've said. Somebody always breaks that promise. Please don't tell them what I'm telling you. Yesterday, we had a, a day away in, in Glen Trest, down in, in, um, in Peebles, kind of contemplating mountain biking ahead. Um, we lost a child. Found him again. <laughs> Just lost him. You know, they disappear off. Children do. And it's striking when he saw us again, we're looking for him. Just that, that moment of restored confidence and relief in the child. Because the only person who knows the way back to the car is there. And that's the sense of this. Now, Paul acknowledges, he uses the language of child, parent. Not all of us experience that in a positive way in our human realms, but our relationship with God as our Father is written here as, as dependent. It's intimate. It's Abba Father. It's very intimate. It's dependent. The kind of concept here is when you are in need of a close relationship because there is something you need or help that you need, that is what it means to be a Christian. Yes, God is sovereign. And yes, God is to us your majesty. But here God is Father. He is the one we need when we are lost and struggling. Abba, Father, is intimate. It's Daddy, that's the kind of language. It's dependent, it's trusting, it's confidence. And then through the Holy Spirit, we have hope. Through the indwelling Spirit, we have hope. Verses 23 to 25. Not only the creation, but we ourselves, we have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Patience. 
One of the things uh, I hope we've sorted out in our studies in Romans is the now and the not yet of the Christian life. In other words, the life that we live in here on this earth is not always, but the general realm of our existence here on this earth with bodies that are dying and a world that is dying is struggling and suffering. That's the general realm of this world. That's the now of the Christian's life. The not yet is the world to come. A resurrection body in a resurrected earth. Why is it that I needed a day at Glentress just to work out if I could still do the black run on a mountain bike? Because I can't anymore. Why can't I anymore? Because my knees are shot to pieces. And that's Romans 8, sort of. Dying bodies in a dying world. That's a no. One of the youngsters in the first service had a scar from his mountain biking at Glen Tress, of which he was very proud. There's a now of this life. That's a trivial illustration, but you know that frailty and decay is much more serious than that. And not yet, it's the world to come. Somebody in our church family was writing to me about this and said for many, many years they were in a church which promised the not yet for now. Promised the not yet was for now if you just were more godly, more holy, closer to Jesus. If you eliminated this sin or that sin, the not yet that is promised will come into your life and there will be prosperity and health and these terrible problems that you are dealing with will go. That's lies. It's not true. It's not true because Paul says the language you and I will experience along with him, the great apostle, is groaning. Groaning is now language. It's not not yet language. Groaning. But we do not groan. And groan, we groan in hope. Hope punctuates our groaning. Let me illustrate it in the most obvious way. You go to a funeral of a Christian that has died, you groan, you groan, you really groan. The groaning is audible, it's real, it's visceral. But you groan with hope, with hope, with hope. The bleakest thing that I see as a minister is seeing people groan without hope. The most wonderful thing that I see as a minister is seeing people who have groaned without hope begin to groan with hope because they've turned to Jesus. And the most comforting thing we experience is when Christians groan with hope. Groaning in hope. And the hope that we have is the hope of redemption, the hope of resurrection bodies, the hope that God will never, ever leave us in Christ. And then through the Holy Spirit, the indwelling Spirit, we have help. What do we need when we groan in hope? We need help. See how Paul works the logic of this? We groan in hope. We receive help. What is the help? We can understand the need of help in the human friendships we have. What do you need when you groan in hope? What do you benefit from the help of people you know and love? Paul wants to remind us about the help we receive from the indwelling spirit 
What kind of help? Likewise, verse 26, the Spirit himself helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. What does God say to us when we are groaning? Stop groaning. Become more spiritual. No, he says to us, there are times when you do not know what to pray or say, but the Spirit himself, God in you, intercedes for you with groanings too deep for words. Whose are the groanings? Well, probably ours, but certainly the Holy Spirit prays right into the heart of our groaning. He who searches our hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The indwelling Spirit prays for us as we groan. The Holy Spirit prays for us right into the heart of our struggles according to the will of God. There are times in this past week where, if I'm honest, I have not known what to pray in certain situations I have found myself in. And I've been very slow, notwithstanding that I'm preaching on these verses, to remember that the Holy Spirit is praying when we do not know what to pray for. Again and again in our lives as Christians, we look back with retrospect and begin to see, although we're very gentle and cautious and weary of talking in these words, that it is true that for those who know Jesus, the Holy Spirit prays for us in ways such that all things work together for good, which means in Romans 8, remember, conformity to the likeness of Jesus and being brought home to glory. And then finally, through the indwelling spirit, we have assurance. Now that's all over Romans chapter 8. And uh, we come back to this next week. Assurance is a wonderful thing. Um, I'm a kind of worrier. One of the things I, we all worry about different things. My wife isn't a worrier at all about the things that I'm a worrier about. And I'm not a worrier about the things that she worries about, which is great, really, isn't it? I worry about, I guess, illness and stuff like that and catching things, which is not a good combination if you're a minister. But there it is. We all worry about different things. And they're not, they're not little worries, these are they. They can be crippling. Assurance is a wonderful thing. The assurance of our son yesterday when he saw one of us and all was well. He wasn't going to be lost in Glentrest Forest after all. The assurance of one of God's children when they remember the truths of Romans 8. Romans 8 starts on the basis of the Apostle Paul saying, what a wretched man that I am struggling with my sin. Romans 8 starts on the basis of Paul saying, and who knows what Paul's thought in the flesh was? Maybe he was afraid of suffering and dying. That's how Romans 8 starts. How does it end? Starts with a lack of assurance. How does it end? Verse 38, for I am sure 
that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation, nor anything else that any of us can think of, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wonderful verses. Assurance. You go home this afternoon, whatever it is going on in your life, if you're a Christian, you have nothing to fear. You're immortal. Your life is in God's hands. The Holy Spirit indwells you. You're his child. You're an heir with Christ. You don't know what to pray for. The Holy Spirit's praying for you. You're battling with some volume two stuff in your life. Well, pray to God that the Holy Spirit will come into that area of your life and change it. And that's just the stuff Romans 8 says about the Holy Spirit. There's plenty more in the New Testament. Final question. How do I know if I'm indwelt by the Holy Spirit? Now, that's not the $64,000 question. It's not the, the kind of, okay, this is all fine, but how do I know if I really am indwelt by the Holy Spirit? I want to tell you that you can know absolutely, 100%, whether or not you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Or you can know absolutely that you are a Christian or not. Remember? Paul writes Romans 8 for assurance, not to rob us of assurance. How do we know we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit? Well, first reason, point three in the talk, that we have a settled conviction in our minds and hearts, not always there. It can be fitful. We're often fitful as Christians. But a settled conviction that we are in a relationship with a living God, that you can call him Father. That you can pray. Now, that doesn't mean to say we're not fitful in our prayer lives, but that you can and do pray in an intimate, real family way. Father, Jesus. The settled conviction that we have hope How do you know you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit? You go to a funeral or you see something or you hear of somebody whom you love that is dying and you go to a funeral and you hear the gospel and you cry, but you have hope. Hope in life and resurrection. That you know help. The help that comes when the Holy Spirit prays the help that you see God in retrospect working in your life, the settled conviction that you have assurance. My wife's personality is such that in spiritual things she has rock-solid assurance. My personality is such that I need Romans 8 a lot. But I never, ever lack real assurance. It's there, always. It's elusive sometimes, but you come back and you find it. How do I know I'm indwelt by the Holy Spirit? Because I have settled conviction about relationship and hope and help and assurance. How do I know I'm indwelt by the Holy Spirit? How do I know that you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit? Because I see you changing. I see your life's changing. You see my life changing. 
you know by looking at me, I know by looking at you, if you're indwelled by the Holy Spirit. You know yourself. If your conscience is alive, you know yourself that if the Word of God just begins to lift the lid on different areas of your life, progress is evidence of the indwelling Spirit. My life is changing. How do I know I am indwelt by the Holy Spirit? I have settled conviction. My life is changing. But we're fitful, aren't we? And let's be careful of basing our assurance on what we feel. Perhaps some of the risky ground that we got onto in Romans 8 was the subject of depression and such related illnesses. I've learned uh, working with people with depression that they feel nothing. They feel no sense of closeness to God, no sense of conviction, no sense of the transforming work of God in their lives, such is the nature of their illness. And therefore, how do I know I am indwelt by the Holy Spirit? It comes down in the end, not to how we feel, but to whether or not we have understood and of clarity about the objective or the factual reality that underpins it all, Jesus Christ's death on the cross. You see how Paul begins Romans 8, how do you know there is no condemnation? How do you know that the righteous requirements of the law are being fulfilled in us because Jesus Christ died? So how do you know you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit? But you sit here this morning and you know, you understand. You look at the cross. It is not foolishness to you. You look at the cross of Christ and you know that Jesus died on that cross that your sins might be forgiven. That you look at Jesus Christ on his cross and you say, He died bearing my sin. And God condemned him that I might be not condemned. That's how you know you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ died for my sins. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this great chapter in Romans. We thank you for the assurance it brings to us as Christians. We thank you for the assurance that we face no condemnation, that we have been set free from the power and mastery of sin, that we will be free from the very presence of sin. Thank you that through the indwelling spirit we have relationship and hope and help and assurance. Thank you, Lord, that we know that we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit because of that sense of settled conviction, because our lives are changing, but most of all, because we understand why Jesus Christ died and what happened on the cross. And Lord, if we're not 
yet there in our understanding. Help us to see and understand the cross clearly. And put our faith in Jesus Christ as the means of that salvation. And we pray, Lord, as we close, for those we know and love who are not Christians, always on our minds and hearts in Romans 8. You saved us. And you saved the Apostle Paul who wrote these words, the chief antagonist against the church in its early life. You opened his eyes. You opened his heart to trust in Jesus as his Savior. So you can open the hearts of those we love. We ask that you would do that for your glory, for their good. And because it is the deepest desire of our hearts, hear our prayers. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.